Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? Today I'm interviewing Ben King, the CEO of Pesky Fish. It is an amazing new food app that lets consumers buy fresh fish directly from the fishermen live as it is being caught on the boat. They can deliver the fish to you direct within six hours, delivering the freshest fish experience of your life. And it's cheaper than buying fish normally, which is just an insanely cool product and idea. So he tells us about his experiences building the company and other companies and just insights from how they nearly went bankrupt, ranking up ranking, raking up credit card debt or hiring the wrong co-founders and just providing some really useful lessons and funny stories. And he was just a really great guest to chat to and a fascinating business concept to understand and just to witness something that is really going to be changing how we engage with our food. And on that, please enjoy the interview with Ben King. The business is very simple. We're ultimately trying to take what is an incredibly complicated and opaque supply chain, food chain, one of the oldest in, uh, industries in, in the world, and to redistribute the value back to the boats and back to the consumers by cutting out that and, and that cost in the middle. So, you know, right now we are distributors who work with boats and send their catch directly into customers. But ultimately, we want to be the supply base and the supply chain of the global industry so that by the time, hopefully, we've made it work, any fisherman will be able to sell to any customer through the chain and benefits are consequences. The biggest change will be that, that final bit, that if you look at every food chain at the moment, the producer sells to stage one, who sells to stage two, who sells to stage three. It's sequential. But I think every food chain, we think every food chain is going to change where it will be possible to sell to everyone in aggregate. And that will just completely rewrite the economics. Of it. And yeah, the definitely. Okay. What do you think is the biggest barrier? Is it getting people to realize the potential of the technology or is it building the technology? Ultimately, we're not a tech company. You're ultimately working with people. You're ina- you're, the technology enables the people to do what they're doing maybe a little bit better but ultimately they still have to catch fish there's no tech yet that has been produced that enables you to catch fish you still rely on that human interface Mm. i think that the hardest part for us participation is getting enough people to be able to try it to both at the fishing end at the demand end with the customer end so that it becomes habitual becomes the you know incumbent way of doing things because the existing industry has prevailed for so long the the beauty that we have is that at both ends of the chain we we do add, in many cases, multiples of value back to both ends of the chain. And you can, you know, it's tangible, you can see that. So it's just a matter of time, as long as we don't balls things up too big. It's yeah. only a matter of time that we finally get there. But it's, it's human participation. It's nothing to do really to the tech. Okay, so what would you describe as your main role in the business? My job, ultimately, so if you look at how our team is structured, myself and my partner, Aiden, Aiden runs the operations of a catch-to-play operation, is running the daily setup of our company. I see my job really is setting, essentially enabling people to do their, their best within their area. So Aiden has complete accountability and autonomy for operations. Dan has their supply side, the data 
data science, Andreas, tech, you know, goes on and on. My job is basically just to ensure that, mm. that those pieces of a puzzle consistently turn to a picture, that everybody's signed off on one strategy and that they feel an ownership of it. If I get to do that and ensure that we are almost like the buffers of the bowling alley, that we don't go off into the gutter, then I feel that my job will be done. Like I'm doing an effective version of it. Cool. Yeah, I really like that analogy of making the pieces of a puzzle turn into a picture. There you go. It's cool. Okay. How did you have the idea for Pesky Fish? So Pesky started as a restaurant idea. Yeah. Pesky essentially started as, as being the output of what we're delivering now. So it's been like this for the last sort of five, six years in London restaurants where you no longer have these massive, or you do, but it's not as common to have these massive menus, fixed prices, but really high prices with huge inventories in the back. And you see this migration towards delivering one thing really well and making it not only brilliant quality but financially affordable so you see that with franco manca with pizzas flat iron with with steak but what you never you weren't seeing was that being with fresh fish you were seeing it with fish and chips and you'd see really expensive places but there was nowhere that was doing the flat iron of fish and so basically just thought why not try and create it and long story short having spoken to the guy who actually set up flat iron said that the supply chain doesn't enable it to happen it's too volatile in quality it's too volatile in price traceability doesn't exist and so you just would never be able to have a consistent operation and cost base of that restaurant and so i thought why not just go and see whether we if we can create the supply chain that enables that to happen just by digging into the industry and putting spotlight you realized how bad it was but therefore how much better it could be from that sort of genesis of an idea we moved that to wanting to become the new supply chain of the world so it's quite a grandiose jump but it was eventually the path of least resistance okay so you change your name from pesky fish to just pesky i right? we haven't actually done that we just don't ever it's, call it fish so you do want to be supply chain for the world not just for fish Potentially. I mean, fish has got a beautiful operational nuance that enables our operation to work. So it would be great to be able to migrate that into all areas. It's just more difficult to do it in other food categories. I'll give you an example. If you had 50 farms and you were sourcing from 50 farms, that could be in a thousand square mile area. But you can source from 50 boats and they land into one port in an area the size of this room. So it gives you a natural point of consolidation, which is what we need to make our operation work. So yes, we'd love to do it, but there is so much value that can be added just in fisheries before you go elsewhere. Yeah, maybe quite a few years time exactly if you, you know the example we use here is that if you look at in sri lanka the guys who get the fishermen who get the tuna that gets sold into billingsgate they get three percent of the value that the billingsgate merchant trades off that three percent so if you could if you look at the fact that we in the uk we've you know on certain species we brought nine times the market value if you yeah. go and roll that out to a country which is 25 30 percent based on fisheries and you're adding 10 times the value to that because the economic multipliers that will have on that economy irrelevant of the immediate impact to that the money in the back of that fisherman's pocket so there is enough incentive and enough value to be added just in fishing okay cool but yeah, so where do you see yourself in five years time i would love to have number of much cleverer people than myself which isn't particularly hard i mean the common denominator is not exactly particularly high but to, to who are who are managing individual countries and for my job basically to be determined which area we choose to go into or which category we go to at that point we might start putting on other produce lines but that essentially doing what i'm doing now but maybe at a slightly more sort of hopefully more global level rather than right now with zone one london so we've got quite yeah. a few sort of orders yeah. of magnitude to scale up before we get that's what i'd love to do nice so what do you think about the future of food in terms of there's more vegans and like vegan fish and chips and yeah like 
printing of prawn and stuff. I don't see that as a massive thing. Ultimately, I, you know, whatever your roots to do that, you know, that makes complete sense. I don't believe that veganism is going to feed the world. I don't think ecologically, if you look at the how the whole food cycle works in terms of animals that eat, defecate, put the nutrition nutrients back into the ground, which then enables fertile soil. I don't think you're going to get veganism where you're just going to move on an entirely plant-based diet but again if people choose to do that that's absolutely fine you don't there's no gripe to do so i think our job is to show that seafood especially wild fish can be ecologically sustainable so you don't have a decimating impacting ecosystems but i think as long as you've got ultimately we're going to in 10 15 20 30 years time you're going to have food wars so it will not be a case of choose to choose veganism over fish you will people will go after the resource that will enable them to be nourished yeah so i don't think we're going to be in a position where we're battling for demand versus Mm. veganism personally that's interesting in terms of you yourself then what was your brand before starting this business you really should uh, speak to Aiden. His is much more interesting than mine. But the you can trace it back to a number of different things. So I, before I did this, I was working for the company that owned Jula. We built a service-based business within a manufacturing one. So it's a paint company. We built a really good team, but we built a service for Julux, which was based on enabling, to begin with, schools to design spaces that were better, that were conducive to educational outcome. Not necessarily attainment or directly attainment things that would make people feel more proud resort from not being doing all the bullying so that was the excitement for me the real value in that for me was adding value like how, how can you use existing capacity to leverage more value for the people that are in it and then before then and i was there for four and a half five years but before that we tried to start a ski resort in andorra which is a very long story but wow. again the same driver that skiing should not be a, an exercise for really wealthy people it should be so yeah. that everybody should be able to use because mentally and physically such mm. a great sport fortunately that failed on the back of a bad weather report and we would yeah. have lost a lot of money had we actually gone down that route wow. but so uh, um, maybe come back to the five-year question that'd be something i'd like to do in about 10 years time yeah how do you start a ski resort you get some- we have to buy you have to buy almost every facet of it out you have to yeah. buy the ability to use the almost like buying the council of it so you can control everything on that side but you were even looking we were talking to people like decathlon so that you could have cheaper ski gear you could rent ski gear so you didn't have the big upfront costs, which is the, one of the biggest blockers of people going skiing. So in time, we will get there. But um, yeah, we've got a, a few fish to find first. Yeah. Oh, that's skiing. And yeah, we're kind of, when I'm there, I'm always wondering about like how they do things and when things get built. And it's ridiculous. And the, if you look at the potential revenue generation in terms of the volatility of it on a good mm. season versus a bad season, you'd never get into it because it's so scary. If you guess, yeah. if you have a bad season, especially with the trends in terms of snowfall, it's, it's such a risky business. But that's why ski passes are now so expensive. Yeah. Because they've got to factor that risk into, the, into their price. How did you, what did you learn about building teams when you were doing that? With, well, you were leading? Oh, Dulux. Yeah, yeah not loads. I mean, I'd say the type of individual that we, we now have here is probably quite different to what we had at, at Dulux. You had a whole rate. I mean, this is a company that had 2,000 employees in the UK. So it was a big, it's a, I mean, it's a massive yeah. company. I'd say I've learned a lot more by having the autonomy here mm. and the consequences of it going wrong. So yeah. we had one, uh, when, before I started, and the, the sort of ultimate outcome is to genuinely follow your instinct rather than follow a CV. That was probably the most stupid thing. I One of the most stupid things I've done in this entire process was to originally employ and see, what, hire on the base of a CV. But the biggest thing we found is something we encourage everyone to do now is, is genuinely to find out people's intent. Why, why do they want to? And you seek through the sort of the people make up and they put on their CV. The first three lines on a CV, I always think hilarious. We put it like, I'm, a, I'm an ardent, like passionate team worker who likes to work on their own. All of the yeah. rubbish you get at the top of the CV, we just 
throw it all out. So we don't look at anything to do with, we look very little to do with education in terms of like A-levels, that sort of stuff. We just look at what were their experience and then you get a real gauge of, of, um, of, of the person when you meet them, which is how we eventually found Aiden. Yeah. Cool. DBEs, I've never been TV guys and it's good to know what skills someone has, I guess, for some things. But... It, it helps, but you get... I think it comes down to also who's going to be the right cultural fit. Now, that's a massive thing. And I think for, for us, irrespective of the discipline and the application that you have within the team, as long as you feel that that person will galvanize around the goal and the ambition we have for the business, whether it be three years or six months, that has been the biggest sort of determinant. Because those people will be the ones who are motivated, who will put in the extra hours if it's needed rather than clock off like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, so what do you ask people to try and determine that? that- you, well, you just we literally go straight up and ask what motivates you. And you can see the sincerity in their, in their eyes and the way that they will either fabricate language or they'll talk from the heart a lot of the time. And it doesn't matter if they take a while to answer the questions because some people don't respond immediately. And that's, that, that's great because people generally consider it. And that was, if you look at Dan, you look at Andreas, who just brought on today to do the to manage the restaurant channel. They all come from very different disciplines and they'll all have very different jobs in the company. But the motivation is so sincere. That is, that's what commands loyalty and that's what commands, I think, energy and, and effectiveness. And a lot of the skills that you need to do your job, you can learn. Whereas I don't think you can learn the temperament. You can't learn to be interested in what you're doing. No, exactly. The single most important thing that we find. Cool. Yeah, I did a podcast two days ago with someone who said, it's not necessarily having fun isn't like the biggest metric of what you should be doing. It's just how interested are you in what you're doing? And yeah. As long as you're always interested, you kind of always go through the shit. Exactly. And I think it's going to be a, ultimately a bubble that will explode around this idea that everyone should be having just like unfathomable amounts of fun in, in yeah. what you do. You should find enjoyment in your work. You should find passion in what you do. But also there's the reality is that if you're going to be doing anything that's what, what I'd say in, in our line of the work, we're doing things constantly, which no one else is doing. That's really hard. Like it's really shit from time to time to have to do yeah. that stuff. You're not always going to enjoy it. But if your motivation is because you want to get to that end goal, you justify that frustration and the pain of doing it because it will be fun to do it once it's delivered as an outcome. Cool. So how did a setback or a failure set you up for future Oh, Christ. <laughs> the biggest one probably was, um, right. if you're going back a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, when it was just getting started, coming back to the hiring, I originally sent LinkedIn posts, a uh, job advert, to find an operational partner. And very long story short, it got down to two people, Aiden and this other guy. Aiden, I met him and I loved him. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Like his energy and enthusiasm was stunning. What he'd done out in Sierra Leone, mind-blowing, but he seemed quite young. And whereas this other guy was in his 50s, had what looked like on the CV, operational, like amazing experience. And I thought, given that I'm not operationally minded, it would be good to have that on top of it. And this guy ended up being a bad decision, cripplingly bad decision. Yeah. And in the end, fortunately, managed to get Aiden off the back of it, but who is now really ter- has taken the business from a skeleton into a full-fleshed body and has actually honed in what is it in the hike, almost coming back to the, the last things we were talking about. Had I not gone through that experience, I would have made it later. I would have been more, much more like decimated had, yeah. had we done that later down the line. But there's hundreds of things that, but... You could touch on maybe another big mistake. From the very beginning, I think I wanted, we wanted to create a service that ultimately added a huge amount of value, but... Or th- like consistently and consistently was delivering what we said it was going to do. And I think the mistake I made was to take uncalculated risks to assume that we were going to have products that we or, or would soon have fish that we weren't going to have. There was a 20% chance we'd have it. And I'd say, yeah, we're likely to have that. And so all you end up doing 80% of the time by that math is over promising and under delivering and realizing that credibility is the most valuable commodity in what we do. So we are better off telling people 
four days out of five that we're not going to have that fish because we don't think we are going to have it and yeah. then occasionally deliver it if it does turn up rather than going out. And I think that, that whole philosophy of under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver has just been such a change in our mindset of how we work. Yeah, it's definitely better to manage expectations. I was talking to one of our investors earlier and saying the biggest, biggest catalyst to success is management of expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it depends on... If you have a really slow sales cycle, like something with like some software that you're selling something that's going to take a year, you can sell what you don't do and then deliver it. But... If it's like fresh fish, it's like, it. you can't sell something that isn't there. That's <laughs> it. Exactly. And I think it's also, it, you flip it in a different way because now, so if you take, this is a, a unique example, but the average, if you take a, hat, a scallop, hand oil scallop, yeah. very valuable commodity in, in the sort of London restaurant market. The average time is around 36 hours for it to come out, like the best is being, it's 36 hours for it to come out of the water and to then eventually end up in the customer. And so for us, that was never going to be good enough. So we started at 18 hours and now we've got down to six hours. So that is, a, that's cut 83% of the time off from what our next close fastest competitor can do. We got to that because we knew that we wanted to, to literally don't care about the competitors, but do the best that's possible. But that now is an operation that happens every single day if it needs to. It is not something that is a sporadic flash in the pan. That is something that we can deliver every single day. And now that we've got the operation there, we can scream and shout about it because yeah. everybody can have access to it now. If I'd gone back before a year ago, I would have said, like, even when we were like in the kindling of the potential of the operation, like, everybody, you can have scallops in six hours now. And it would have just failed, but straight yeah. out. I kind of just remembered something that I had no plan to talk about. But you know, you spoke about not going into other things apart from fish. Yeah. I listened to a podcast with a guy who's really fancy chef. He says he would love a transparent food chain truffles because it just doesn't exist at all. And you yeah. basically have to try and ring people. And yeah. There's yeah. nothing but like just getting a phone. That's it. And well, if you, I mean, you've got a truffle one, you can specifically, you can go back yeah. to that person and say, go to Natura. So if there's a fruit and vet, there's an amazing company, a guy called Franco Fabini, who really helped us in the very early days. And he's working there with a company called, I believe, they're either Bellow. You'll be able to find them on Instagram. And they are literally source to tables. So you can trace every single one. The excitement for me is the fact that chefs themselves are asking for this. The expectation, like the dimension of traceability, is no longer good enough to just have region. Like Cornwall's massive. That means absolutely nothing. And most of the time, especially with the fish, Cornish fish can sometimes come in from other areas and be just yeah. be sold in Cornwall. Whereas that demand for traceability, now that it's demanded, the supply side is just going to have to catch up so quickly. But it's great to hear when other chefs are actively asking for it. Cool. I'll send you that podcast. Do, yeah, man. I'd love to. I need to find that chef. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a really good podcast, actually. It had some really good advice. Having spoken about failures and general personal growth, what does the growth mindset mean to you? I mean, a couple of things. A lot of the time, I think it comes down to, if I was to interpret it, and having not seen some of the stuff that you've done and, and not looked at this as a sort of defined saying, I think it's a generally it's like a state of mind to not be comfortable thinking that where you are at that point in time is a fulfillment of your potential and that you can always push yourself to mentally, physically, to get better, to achieve more and therefore get more satisfaction out of that. I think that's, if you're taking growth in a holistic way, I think that's what it should be. I'm just in the middle of a really good book by a guy called David Goggins, who sort of emulates that quite significantly. It's sort of like the Tony Robbins side of things. But I think you see a lot of people who don't come anywhere near their potential. And I think a growth mindset is one that's almost like an insatiable desire just to constantly get better than your best. Nick Goggins? David Goggins. David Goggins. Okay, well, it's really good. The audiobook. Yeah, I do like an audiobook. Okay, I will definitely read that. 
what is the biggest risk you have taken? Oh, sorry. The, I'd say with Pessy was probably the biggest risk. Quite a bit of money to because I knew ultimately I was going to have my own company. I'd just been too lazy to start it at some point. So I'd saved up a amount of cash and I got to a point, Pessy, where I was like, I'm absolutely convinced this is going to work. The reality is it took twice as long and cost me twice as much to get there. And so that if you, we thought we were going to have investment by sort of March and we then get to May, I end up there with a, just shy of a 10 grand credit card bill selling most of my stuff just to pay for Aiden's rent because he was working practically without a salary and putting everything into it. And we probably did weeks away from not just the company folding, but then inheriting a 10 grand debt on my credit card at 26.5% APR. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a particularly big risk, but from a, from a mental perspective, mm. it's quite tacky. We managed to pull it out the bag through tech stars and through a couple of other things we managed to get there but had it failed not only would you have had the mental frustration of a company not living up to its potential because we or everybody knows mm. that this is going to be this is going yeah, to be yeah, the way the future is going to be someone else build it yeah exactly like, exactly it. exactly and you ending up with the cash that, that sits in someone else's pocket and what sits in american express's pocket that 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 was probably it there were times when you could have pulled the emergency cord probably from sort of march onwards there were times when we didn't know that we had no certainty and it was growing in certainty that was a call where Aiden and I had where it was like, I think I have to go and get a job. Otherwise, I'm generally not going to be able to pay my rent. Just that. It comes back to the point of the motivation of how you find people who to come to the team. That single belief that we will get there by serendipity, by chance, but we'll just put the hard work into it to try and let those two, those facts come true. That was a pretty tasty risk, which has paid off, but could still fall to pieces unless we do our job. By no means like home and safe. No, just, yeah. absolutely yeah. no chance. Yeah, that's probably the but you, After the Techstars demo day that I saw you pitch out along with 10 other companies, you definitely had the biggest line of investors trying to talk to you. And I spoke to a lot of people afterwards being like, oh, what was your favorite pitch? And they're like, oh, Pesky was so good. But to honestly, like, the reason why we, I felt as a story was successful on that day was because it's a story that people can relate to. Ultimately, we, you haven't got tech geniuses. You haven't got financial wizards in this team necessarily. You have a very tangible human story. If you remember at the beginning, we started with Pete talking about how it has impacted him and his business. Pete the Fisherman. Pete the Fisherman, yeah, exactly. And and then you also had the chef there as well at the same time. You were able to convey a human narrative that it doesn't matter what the fisher was ultimately irrelevant. It was just the commodity that brought those two human transactions together, that sorry, the, the relationship together under one transaction. I think just people could relate. That's all it was. You know, we weren't there looking for investment because we were lucky enough to have brilliant investors already. So it wasn't a pitch to try and get money. It was a pitch to future industry out in a salient way and see what people thought about it. And I think people will that from their future. You said you already had investors by doing day. Do you basically get them by telling that story? Is that how you made traction on things? Or did you learn how to tell the right story over time? I think, I think it's a combination of both. Ultimately, you had our very first investor, David. He was our biggest. Like He was someone that I met on Shaper, which was the world's, not the world's, but weird. It's sort of like, it's like a networking Tinder. He bought into the idea because of he was a, used to run you know, massive global commodity trading for one of the big banks. He could see how this could impact, if done correctly, how this could be the new market sort of paradigm change. So he got excited by that. And then eventually it was just over time. It was most thanks to, to Aiden, actually, because people just bought it to him. Yeah, do you have many lobsters like dying things? Is it quite hard to Not really, no. Like we try and manage the conditions downstairs so they're as close to the seawater. 
conditions that we have. I think, uh, and that's why like, when we get chefs around, we try them not to go and touch them, although I'm the worst at it, because they're just like, it's like sort of going to sea life, like the aquarium. You want to pick up the staff, and the staff is going to touch them. And the lobsters are sort of similar. You just want to leave them in stasis. But that's why, you know, with temperature, salinity, you know, even down to the bacteria that's in there, we try and emulate it as close as possible to the waters of Northumberland so that they're fresh as possible. So is it more the transport that's the hardest thing? or Transport down is tricky of live shellfish but it's it's not impossible we're we're getting now with quite a good reliable system from our boats up in Northumberland. it's just it's the only product we buy in advance so we buy stock and we haven't necessarily committed to the order but it's because it's such a valuable commodity and a quite scarce commodity at the price that we're able to put it out into the market that we tend to be able to flow through at a good pace that justifies yeah. having done it and those will be objectively the guy aiden dan now nick have gone to the effort of making downstairs so good that they are the best shellfish in london you will not get better fresher cleaner healthier lobster consequence um, and that just pays off for the customer cheaper and better for the customer yeah wow cool in short how much cheaper it varies it depends time of the year but you know the traditional wholesaler model is to buy it and charge a percentage markup so anywhere from like 18 to 45 percent whereas we don't do that so we have a fixed distribution fee so it doesn't matter if it's a mackerel or a lobster we charge exactly the same amount to go on top so right now you can have a six seven pound a kilo we can be six seven pound a kilo cheaper than our competitors into those things but that's fine because we're not buying the fish to, tr- to trade it we are fish we make money on the movement not on the on the trading it's going to be when you get like real volume that you start making more money then yeah, I mean, the company makes good, yeah. you know, our revenues are good at the moment. We've grown about 30%, we've gone sort of about 25, 30% month-on-month growth, which is good. The compounding is fantastic, but the most important part for us is that we don't tip topple supply or demand. Make sure that that, that growth, that sort of balance of both sides is, is balanced, which is why we have someone who manages the demand and someone who manages yeah. the supply and all working into Aiden's operations. So it's like a seesaw. Yeah, um, we don't always get it right, but these sided markets are exactly. really hard. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately, we're not, people are buying this produce anyway. It's not as Yeah, they, so they can go somewhere else. Yeah, but it's, if needs be, you can be reliable. But yeah, exactly. Interesting. What are you worried about right now? Probably complacency. That's okay. about it. I think that you'll become complacent or as a, as a team, we've become complacent. I don't think that's actually going to happen. The reality is this is how every food chain will migrate to. Fish will probably be the first one, whether we do or someone else does it. So we don't need to worry about proof of concept because we know that that's the way. Can we get the best people in, both at supply and demand of it from a team? Can we get the best people in? Can we motivate them? Can we excite them so that they want to stay here and that they want to grow and they want to be part of the company? And if we can do that, then and we can consistently deliver down one strategy rather than trying to expand and grab every opportunity, then I think we'll put yeah it's the complacency stop that from happening what is your thing like what makes you tick other than my this is because i'm really weird yeah. i love watching the movement of eyebrows if someone opens up a scallop for the first time and they can't open it because yeah. it's so firm because they've never seen anything like that the excitement and motivation for us constantly is that you're doing something that no one sees both the supply and demand end, mm-hmm. and you're changing behaviors as a consequence of that so you're you know, the company, the individuals in here are not a story, but you just change your behaviors by experiences, whether that's fish, eventually by skiing, all those different things. That's what is the most exciting part I find of what I do personally, professionally, whatever. Cool. It's interesting. I thought you were going to say like, what do people's eyes when you're sort of staring them in the eyes and you're kind of having one conversation where you're speaking, but then you're having another conversation where like you're doing stuff with your face. And I was yeah, like, that's no, oh, not that weird sort of yeah. yeah. But it's the biggest thing. You always tell someone's reaction never from their words, but from the facial expressions. And when you see someone arch back their neck a bit because all that, like I remember the first time I saw someone trying to open this scallop and it didn't, they couldn't pull it apart with their hands, which is what most lovely yeah. chefs will get is a crap scallop that's dead. And you're seeing one that 
once got it doesn't want to die like that it will you could put them on your fingers and they'll hang there they will yeah. literally clasp on your hand and nobody sees other than the fisherman and so to enable that and that's just once you do it with mackerel when it turns out like a rod but yeah. it's in rhythm water so you do it with fish that people have never seen and just to see the excitement on people's face and for that to become that you immediately redefine their expectations yeah cool and when you can be the person that delivers that expectations and everyone else is shit as a consequence of it that is hugely exciting have you watched latest blue planet so there's a clip where they have this fish that picks up like his scallop and spends like 45 minutes bashing it against oh, the rock to eventually get it open think about blue planet one of our fishermen called joshua i'm definitely going to send this to he's massive in jersey like he's probably one of the best fishermen in jersey and the people we work with he pots for lobsters and crabs so he's got his own website called jersey catch so check it out if you get a chance but i on the jersey catch website you can send a message and then put in an, an email address and so i wrote on there as david attenborough's producer trying to pretend to be david attenborough's producer saying that we're looking to do an episode on shellfish and we hear that jersey is the best place in the british isles to do it can we come and film and go around and he went absolutely biz- he went nuts he phoned us up and he messaged all his mates this message absolutely bananas but yeah, yeah that was really a way to incentivize the fishermen to come on but like that fish that, that smashes the thing against the rock there's so many beautiful things in the ocean that no one ever sees they just see a piece of fish and chips in the plate yeah and yeah. i think people would think quite differently about fish this was like octopus what's your most vivid memory from childhood bloody hell this is gonna sound really ridiculous but i almost died when i was about nine years old cool and yeah it was respectively <laughs> excited and uh, died surfing oh yeah. i didn't die surfing i lived surfing but i almost died when i was surfing to about three years to get back into the sea i'll never ever forget that sensation of feeling at that time even as a nine-year-old just going i'm gonna die i know probably i'm gonna die thank you sir can you explain how that happened i just got caught in a in a rip curl i was just i got caught in a rip and i was just going round and round like a tumble dry and eventually someone pulled me out actually it was my dad pulled me out you, you, i could literally like visualize every single part of it it was so strange it was like thousands of groundhog days just like because mm. it was the same roll rotation over and over and over and over again just constantly not being able to breathe occasionally it pops up a little bit but yeah. you don't know you can't comprehend it quick enough to know that I'll breathe in now because your head's gone back down again yeah. unfortunately I managed to pull out and I was, I was fine but was your dad near you at the time we, it, it wasn't originally and then gradually pulled me out yeah that was and then it was just a bit blurry after that and eventually I was yeah. fine got out on the beach and I think it was okay yeah I generally didn't go to the sea then for about three years after that yeah but it was okay. fine now. I love going to the sea now I definitely suggest anyone going to the sea on Christmas day or boxing day we do it in North Sea in, in Suffolk and as long as you wear shoes so you don't cut your feet open it's unbelievable you don't know what gender you are afterwards because it is good fun yeah, yeah it's nice I had a lot of kayaking and um, yeah we had a rolling like club where you had to like get in the water every yeah. month but yeah one one quite vivid memory actually was when I was kayaking um, I got flipped in the middle of January and it was like snowy and ice everywhere and it was the coldest water and I was pinned against a bridge upside down in my kayak so I had to bail out yeah. like I tried to get out for like 20 seconds and Jesus it's like okay this isn't happening so I got out but then like instantly everything froze I couldn't swim so they're like oh I can't do this which has gone so shot. weird yeah, yeah how did you get out of it then my, my instructor managed to like fish me out and just like put me onto the thing and then kind of pull me to the side and I kind of I couldn't move at all it's just rigid well so much for adrenaline help I would scary. have died for sure it's scary yeah mm. those sort of things yeah you don't I, I mean it sounds like perverse but I actually think have a little brush of mortality yeah. is probably not the worst thing in the world super stupid because then you take calculated risk and you yeah, can jump definitely. out of a plane at a skydive because you know 99.9% of times or well, more than that it's going to be absolutely fine so you just don't do ridiculously stupid things on the regular the, like the medic his head got in doing like the wingsuiting I think he'd been doing it he started with eight friends one of which has died 
all the rest of them have had like major accidents. And yeah. He had his, one of his wings like collapsed just as he was like the cliff. So he hit like the top of this cliff and then fell like 50 meters down, broke like four parts of his spine, punched his lung and was in a coma for like three days. He's like, yeah, maybe I don't do stupid stuff anymore. What is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? Aiden bought me a Diet Coke this afternoon. I could buy you a Diet Coke. the kindest thing. I'll never, ever be able to thank this guy because I can't remember his name, but I had this graduate assessment and we went to this assessment centre and one of the things I thought there was an inordinate amount of spare time in the time we had to prepare and I hadn't realised that that time was left for you to study for the very final thing and you had a whole sort of case study and this guy came up and was like so have you got everything have you read through it this really lovely scottish guy have you read through it like what were your answers and stuff like that and i was like what are you talking about and it was like the case study for the final and he'd already done it rather than being bear in mind you're all competing against each other all of us for one, one job rather than competing he told me what the answers were wow because, and it was like it was an extraordinary moment of just grace just real genuine selfless kindness had i not done that i probably would have flunked it because i would have done so badly and looked complacent that uh, it would have gone completely sort of tits up as a consequence i've managed to get in he didn't that sort of selflessness was wonderful because the domino effect of that handout that's it but there's thousands and thousands of incidents but i think the one that one sticks with me because I, I can never thank that guy because i never know who he is so what a cool guy and business concept and just everything from that interview it was great um, as always, I do like to break down my top tips, so let's just break straight into it. Number one, hire based on interest. Don't hire people based on what's on their CV and the skills that they apparently have. Make your decisions based on who is genuinely interested, passionate, and motivated to achieve the vision that you have for the company. They may have a bigger learning curve, but the work they do will be 10 times better. Number two, tell a good story. By telling a story that really pulled on the heartstrings, Ben got a crazy level of interest from investors at the Techstars demo day. He started with a video from one of his fishermen, explaining how his life had been changed thanks to pesky fish. The fisherman told about how he made more money, more reliably, from working with the app, and he didn't need to risk his life anymore going out in dangerous seas just to try and make ends meet. Now, by telling a story that people understood and could buy into the concept, it just massively increased his chances of success. Number three, the world of food is changing. Chefs and consumers expect to be able to get hold of better products faster and more transparently. The next five years is going to have a radical shift in the food chain as people become more connected with the sources of their food. Seeing how a company like Pesky Fish operates has opened my eyes and once you see how it could be, it seems ridiculous to think it could ever go backwards. And now on to books. Ben recommended Can't Hurt Me. Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds by David Coggins. Now this book is about how the author went from being a depressed, overweight young man to one of the best endurance athletes on the planet and setting numerous world records, which sounds amazing and I'm pretty excited to read it. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, Try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website, growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me, if you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast.
Next week, I have Lisa Forte on the podcast. She won the Top 100 Women in Tech Award last year for her work combating cybercrime and social engineering and just through public speaking across the world on the topic. She began her career working in anti-piracy intelligence in Somalia before moving into counter-terrorism intelligence for the UK government and now has launched her own cybersecurity startup, Red Goat Cybersecurity. She's just a crazy smart and passionate lady who was just so much fun to talk to and learn from. So you're really not going to want to miss this episode.